Hello and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. In today's episode, we will talk with Jan Lika, the former CFO of OVH Cloud and current CFO of Exotech. Jan was the chief financial officer of OVH Cloud, a French cloud computing company, from 2019 to 2022, and led the company to its IPO in October 2021. Jan and Gauthier will discuss the considerations around conducting an IPO versus a private funding round, the importance of defining the company's strategy and governance model early, the choice of listing location, and how to select the IPO advisors. Before we start, we would like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not an investment recommendation and that Amundsen Investment Management and the participants on this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Jan, thank you very much for joining us today on the show. You've led the IPO of OVH back in 2021, October 21. The IPO successfully raised, I think, over 400 million euros at a valuation of 3.5 billion euros. And it was at the time one of the most expected IPO on Euronext Paris. Can you please first tell us a bit more about um, OVH, please? Of course, well, first of all, um, Gauthier and uh, Pere, thank you very much for uh, having me this morning. So I'm Jan Luca, I was the CFO of OVH Cloud uh, between January 19 and uh, October 22. And uh, OVH Cloud is a French company, which is today the largest European cloud company. Revenue, uh, as published, ended uh, August uh, 22, 788 million of revenue, 308 million of EBITDA. It was founded by a, in 99, so 23 years ago, by a visionary engineer by the name of Octave Clabat, who is very well known in France. And Octave still owns 70%, 7-0 of the company today. But obviously, um, uh, even though it's a company that has always, that has always grown profitably and um, mostly organically, it's a company that uh, opened its capital twice, actually, the first time uh, in October 2016, when KKR and Towerbrook joined and um, uh, became 20% shareholders. Uh, and the Kleba family uh, still retained 80% at that time. And the second time, which uh, was at the time of the IPO, which uh, uh, we led in October 21, so a bit more than a year ago, when um, a total amount um, of IPO was 450 million euros, of which 350 were raised and 100 million uh, were actually um, a secondary amounts. Okay, perfect. So uh, obviously the decision at the time was to um, to IPO and become a public company, although you had, as you said, a strong um, ownership structure with with a family behind and and two very strong private investors, KK and Terrebrook. Why the IPO rational then? Well, it's, it's a good question because we really, until the moment we made the decision, had um, a, a very important debate between raising equity privately or publicly. So that was really um, a, a topic which did trigger a lot of considerations. And we finally decided to go for an IPO based on two fundamental grounds. First of all, of course, we decided to raise funds. We didn't have to raise funds, uh, 
at the growth rate we were uh, uh, we we enjoyed at that time uh, around 15%. But we decided it was time for the company to accelerate its growth, and this is why we decided to raise additional funds. So there was a purpose. Uh, to raise fund, which was very clearly identified. We could have gone privately, but we decided to go public because we also thought that to accelerate the growth, it was important to enhance the company's brand awareness. And uh, I would say standing on the market, good standing, uh, reputation, and to make sure that we were no longer seen as uh, the little French company, which has grown rapidly, but much more as an established company with a certain status. Um, and definitely in hindsight, by the way, because we're now almost a year and a half behind, it's definitely helped. So the combination of those two uh, factors were the decision-making points. And I must say as well, but that has to do with timing, of course, the fact that the markets, we uh, believed that the markets were and were going to continue to be open for an IPO because, you know, you can have all the considerations I said before, if the markets are closed, they're closed. Yeah. Yeah, those are the um, elements you don't necessarily have, have total control on, right? And, and we come back to that. But so when you took the job, you say in January 2019, you were not sure if the company will IPO, but I guess the mandate you had as a CFO was to prepare the company for a potential IPO, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. First of all, you can never be sure that you're going to IPO the business until uh, the bell has rung. So that's, uh, but that's the case of a private transaction as well. So it, it would have been, you know, very out of place to, to believe that uh, in January 19, I joined for the IPO. You can always say so in hindsight, mm -hmm. uh, you know, after the fact, but you can, you're, you're never sure. It's a, a matter of the readiness of the market, the readiness of the company. And uh, indeed, when I joined, uh, which was January 19, you could not say that the company was ready for an IPO. And that uh, because of, of uh, a number of reasons. First of all, and that may be the one reason that um, uh, we could single out as a, as a critical benefit of, of the IPO. There was no alignment yet when I joined around what the company's strategy actually was and even no real alignment around what strategy actually means. And it's probably not uncommon to see this in founder-led companies because the strategy of a founder-led company, especially when it's relatively small, which OVH Cloud was for a long period of its, uh, of its time, is really what the, the founder believes is necessary and must be done. And, and that's basically it. Until a moment when, you know, potential investors or, you know, other people around start to ask, what is actually your strategy? And with Octave, what the, what the answer was, and there was, of course, a strategy, but it was mostly a product strategy uh, rather than a market strategy or a strategy to achieve a goal. So we first had to uh, internally align with what we mean by strategy. But it's important to define what we mean by that before, you know, trying to, to figure out what it actually is. And that took a bit of time. Uh, because first of all, we had a business to run. So, mm. you know, you don't, you don't spend the weeks uh, just discussing that particular point. And at that point in time, we, we did get some help. There was a, um, a small company, which we used also for the IPO to define our equity story. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, but the leader of that company first had very private sessions with uh, Octave and one of our board members to discuss with Octave what is actually commonly meant by strategy and what the strategy actually was. And 
That was laid down on paper gradually. And gradually, Michel, our CEO, and myself got into the picture. And this alignment, I would say, took a good six months, but, you know, sessions, you know, uh, once or twice a month. And in January 20, we finally put together a signed off on, the, on a piece of paper, 10 to 15 pages, I remember, um, which was our equity story and which uh, laid out the, fun- the foundations of our strategy. It was extremely useful and I would say still is foundational uh, for OVH Cloud. It really started a new era in the company's development. But of course, you have all the rest. You know, you're only IP already when you have, uh, I would say, a transparent structure, when you have a corporate governance in place, when you have robust financial control, when you have a transparent external reporting, and when you have your CSR uh, in order, uh, corporate and social responsibility, you know, all those topics which are part of a, of a good IPO readiness plan. Mm, okay. So basically, um, the management actually changed, right, be- before the IPO. You mentioned that, um, you know, you you started this process of defining the equity story well ahead with, with Octave and the family. But uh, who was involved? Were, were you as well involved and, and the CEO? And, and oh, was that done before you actually joined the company? How early was that done? No, it, it, was, uh, it was actually done after I joined the company. Uh, we really started in the summer of 19, uh, 19, 2019, when the discussions uh, about, uh, you know, which way to go, uh, IPO or uh, or private started to really emerge, and the discussions about what is what uh, the next step of development of the company was going to be. Uh, and when we determined together that it would be great to accelerate, uh, and we found out that we needed additional funds to accelerate from fifteen percent to north of twenty percent, and, um, and then the, the discussions to go for an IPO emerged. And, and actually, you know, all the work that has been done for an IPO could have been recycled until the very last moment into a private sale. Because getting ready for an IPO is fundamentally making the company better. Mm. And if it's better for an IPO, it's also better for a private sale. So yes, we were involved to get back to your, uh, you know, uh, precise question. Michel Paulin, the CEO who joined the company in September 18 and myself joined four months later, January 19. We were both involved from the get-go in the early discussions, which, of course, did involve some of the board members, obviously KKR and Towerbrook, and also the board member who became our key uh, uh, reference uh, board member, Bernard Go. And, and those discussions were first around the strategy, like I, like I said. You refer before. to some of the um, IPO work streams, but, but you know, as you say, those could be um, very relevant as well if, if the company was to sell um, privately, right? So in, in a dual track process. But, but can you just remind us what are those main IPO work streams which you think are, are very important for, for getting the company ready just to be listed, um, depending again on the market conditions? Yes, of course, of course. Well, let, let me uh, start with w- where we started. You need to have an equity story. And the equity story, basically, you know, if you define it just a few words, you need to be able to explain to anyone why your customers are going to, to buy more tomorrow than today. And you need to be able to explain to anyone why your competitors are not going to eat your lunch. Mm. If you answer those two questions in a convincing manner, you can say, you have the fundamentals of an equity story. And then you develop a strategy to get there, to get to where, what, what your goal is. And once you have equity story and strategy, then you have to develop a business plan, which is the, uh, 
basically the money version and the KPI version of your strategy. You express your strategy in uh, key business drivers and in money, and it has to fly. Otherwise, mm. you know, <laughs> you, you can at this, start, at, at this stage still question your strategy. And once you have this business plan and you have to develop three different models, one is uh, with uh, operational KPIs, one is with financial uh, um, uh, fundamentals, how you're going to fund your strategy. And another one is tax mm. tax model, which is by legal entity. Once you have all of this, you have to develop an operational plan. And this operational plan answers the question how you're going to reach your goals, who you're going to employ, and um, how you're going to execute your strategy and, have an, and how you're going to be organized as well to execute your strategy. And once you have all of that, and we really did that, you know, I can still remember the precise dates when each and every of those steps uh, were achieved because every time we had a board meeting to have a full presentation and discuss the content, then, you know, you can start, you're ready to, to have annual budgets and to report and so on. So that's what you need to achieve, but you have a number of enablers to achieve that. And to have the, the, the enablers you need Obviously, you need to have a robust financial control. So you need to work on your internal control. You need to be, you know, uh, to, to produce your financial statements on a monthly basis under IFRS. And you need to do so very quickly, to be able to do so within a few days, every single month. You need to have the necessary KPIs in place. You need to have the right IT environment and security. Of course, you know, in a, in a cloud company. Mm. Cybersecurity is is critical not only to support the company but as a core business element. And in order to have that, you need the right uh, financial organization in place within the company. So you need to know how you're going to be organized. We uh, were a global company, so who works where, who does what. Uh, you know, to have the right cadences in place, the right timetables, and so forth and so on. And it needs to be transparent and complete. And and by the way, I talked about KPIs, but you need to be ready to report externally as well, uh, non-financial uh, reports, uh, uh, you know, on HR and CSR and so on, because it's going to be part of the, your, your financial statements anyway. So it it's quite important to have all of that in place at the moment you press the button to start formally your IPO process, which I would define as appointing your banks. Mm. Is, this is this is really D-Day. And you need to be sure that you can actually execute and you must have done so already in advance uh, because the best way to check you're able to do so is just to do it, uh, you know, to, uh, to execute all those reporting cycles without much room for material mistakes. So you need to have a bit of, uh, of, of time uh, to, to do so. You also have to put together the right structure. You need to know where you're going to uh, IPO your, your business, whether it's going to be in France, in Europe, or elsewhere, because the rules uh, are uh, different. And before you press the button yep. and appoint the banks, you, you need to have an idea where you're going to go. And you need to put together your corporate governance, which can also take time, by the way, especially you know in the tech industry. It is unfortunately still today a very... Uh, you know, male-related industry. Actually, uh, too few women are engineers, in particular in, in France, uh, uh, obviously. And uh, uh, and there are rules. You need to have a certain proportion of women at the board. And we were not the only company with that uh, topic to address. So there is a competition, a fierce competition to attract the right, highly competent 
uh, female board members, and it can take time to put, to bring them on board. Mm. Mm. There's a lot of good things you, you mentioned. I'd like to to um, come back to listing location, governance, and and appointment of you of your advisors. Jan, remind us: Did you have uh, an experience with, with public companies or listed companies before? Because you obviously had a lot to do, right? W were you totally advised by advisors on all those steps, or you had a previous uh, PLC experience? I had never IPO'd a company before. But I had the background which, uh, combined with relevant and great advisors, uh, made uh, everything very, actually very smooth as, as, as it can be, you know, as smooth as possible, I would say. It's very intense, but it, I must say it was relatively smooth overall. So I, I had been a um, head of financial control and then CFO of two different listed companies, but in subgroups. So I was exposed. Mm to the pressure of having to report, you know, I remember in 96, I had to report at uh, 9 a.m. Narden time. Our shareholder at the time was listed in Amsterdam and their head office was in Narden. And if you reported at 9.30, you got uh, a phone call from uh, uh, the uh, chief CFO of the listed entity <laughs> and it was not fun. <laughs> and it was very well known in the group. So the discipline was extremely strict and I, I had this that contact, um, you know, before I was part of a, of a listed group as well. And then I had a very long ride with LBOs and I was uh, uh, very used to raising debt so I did raise a lot of different types of debt. And the largest transaction uh, I led was uh, raising uh, high yield bonds for an amount of 2 billion in 2015. And that was an experience which apart from the, the really public and communication side was, was in terms of formalism was as close as it can be from uh, to, to an IPO. Yeah, no, because you're obviously um, marketing a transaction to the capital market. I mean, this, this would be debt capital market, but you had an experience with, with, with investors, right? I had a lot of experience with investors from that angle. Definitely. Do you think it's, it's a prerequisite or it's a condition for, for CFO today who is listening to us that um, he has a private company um, they potentially want to IPO it to have uh, such experience or you can go around it again, having the right advisors. What, what's your view on that? I think it's always better to have been exposed to some sort of um, uh, investors, whether debt or equity investors. And, and there's obviously a significant difference between the two. One type of investor being, you know, risk oriented, uh, the other one being uh, equity story oriented. So there is a fundamental difference, but um, having the experience of marketing your company, being capable of discussing strategy, uh, business model, competition is a prerequisite. You, you don't have to have the experience per se, but if you had the experience, at least you have proven yourself as being able to talk about your company uh, and to market it, and it's as the CFO has a very interesting position in in uh, in an IPO, and also uh, in uh, putting together uh, a leverage buyout, which is really makes you, on the one hand, a person to market the company, but also a person representing uh, orthodoxy and uh, being completely aware, uh, you know, from a from a legal and uh, you know, uh, you're going to to be the one speaking to the markets or to the investors, private, private or public, about the company's performance day mm. one. So there, there is no way you can uh, be led solely by enthusiasm. You need enthusiasm, but you need a certain level of balance and uh, 
and to be measured. Uh, so it, it's a very you know interesting position to and be in. And what about the role of the founder here? I mean, obviously, uh, as you said, Octave and his half-family have kept 70%. Uh, they founded the business back in 1999. Nonetheless, he actually decided to... Um, to step away, right? As a CEO, obviously keeping a very important uh, operational role, I think as head of strategy, right? But but he stepped away. Do, do you think that's that's related to him or that's 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 a question for every founder? Should they continue as, as a CEO post IPO? What, what's your view? Why is it important to take into account? And, and was it, you know, driven by the market feedback or what, what, what happened there? No, actually, that, that's a very interesting question. The, the change actually occurred um, in September 2018. So three years ahead of the IPO. What, what's very impressive with Octave is that he really always sees the long term and the very long term. He thinks, you know, 10, 20 years ahead. I've never seen him make short term decisions and that's fundamental. And throughout the summer 2018, he understood that in order to bring OVH Cloud to the next step, he needed a professional CEO to establish the basis for future growth. And that's actually what we've done with Michel from 2018 to 2021. It's really building the company's foundations, putting together, putting together an ERP, making, you know, uh, having a management structure in place, an executive committee and so on, a professional board as well. And all of that was done because Octave saw the long-term interest of the company. He stepped down as a, as a CEO. He also realized, by the way, that, that he didn't really like it. Mm. What he liked, and, and I believe definitely still likes, is um, to be inspirational, to uh, look forward and understand what the next disruption is going to be. And uh, Octave is definitely um, uh, technically very advanced and, and very well ahead of the curve. And he chose a governance which actually brings the best of uh, both worlds because he remains, he's not operational, but he is involved in, uh, in product discussions and he feeds the company through the executive committee or otherwise with facts, with uh, considerations without any operational involvement, which means in practical terms, he never tells people what they have to do. That's the job of the CEO but he feeds the company with new ideas, with feedbacks, with customer feedbacks, because, you know, since he's the founder, he, you still have a, a long-term customers coming to him, uh, you know, sharing their impressions and they are not, you know, you, you don't get mm. uh, uh, flowers every day. So he shares that, but he does not interfere in the company's day-to-day -day management. And that breakdown, I think, was really uh, what the company needed and yes, I do think to answer your question that at every moment in time, a founder needs to, uh, to make the decision uh, or to ask himself or herself um, whether he or she is still the right person to lead the company on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. Okay, obviously. So he kept his shareholding. He was not ready to leave the company. He's staying, he's a controlling shareholder, but he felt that Michel and yourself would be better, a better team at the time to um, you know, lead the company as a public company for, for the long term, right? Yes, and to uh, to put together the right executive committee uh, around Michel. How do you think about the listing location then? Because obviously that's always a debate, especially among tech companies in Europe. Should we list in the US? Should we list in Europe? Um, obviously the assumption is that in the US, 
you have a more sophisticated investor base when it comes to tech. You have more liquidity, potentially better valuations, but that's up for the debate. Octave, being a founder in the tech community, did did he did he look at the US? Was it an important consideration at the time? What was your conclusion on that? Well, the the answer, as surprising as it may be, is that it's always been obvious that we would that if we were to IPO the business, it would be in Paris, and and the reason for that is that this was not an IPO of sellers. It was an IPO for the company to raise funds. Uh, so maximizing at all costs or to the detriment of any other consideration, maximizing the IPO price was not and was never in the picture. Um, I, and it's also to the credit of, of KKR and Towerbrook, who also understood, you know, that um, uh, the IPO of the business was put together in order to fund the business and with a long-term view. Today, both KKR and Towerbrook are still shareholders. They have a lower shareholding than what they had pre-IPO, but they were always extremely supportive of what we did. You know, I've, I've heard of other cases where um, there is less alignment and where you have a group of selling shareholders who want to maximize no matter what because they're going to exit. And that's not always in favor of the company because, you know, the, uh, you know, like I, I said a number of times, uh, the IPO is not the finish line, it's the starting line. And you need, as a management in particular, as a management team, you need to, to understand that it's going to be the beginning of a new life and you're going to be accountable to the markets and also accountable for the price at which it was initially yep. IPO. No, I, and I think as well that, well, obviously you mentioned, you know, KKR and Tower Brooks, but they have a lot of experience with, with IPOs. We tend to see them quite often here in Europe. Um, and I think they're, they're well familiar with the European IPO market. But I, I think as well, sometimes you have VC funds or US funds who are not that familiar with European markets. And, and I think they probably have a tendency to look for a listing in their home markets, even if it's a European issue, right? Um, so I think it also depends on, on who are your shareholders pre-IPO pre and that plays a role in the discussions. That's right. And I, I would like to add that for us, it was obvious that it would be in Paris because uh, not only is OVH Cloud a French company, but it also has something very strong to say in Europe, uh, being at the heart and having a strategy, which is, a, you know, which does include fundamental pieces such as data sovereignty in Europe and uh, also sustainability. But if you just simply consider data sovereignty and the conversation between the three main geopolitical areas, which are the US, Europe, and China, uh, OVH Cloud, having taken the lead of the data sovereignty conversation for Europe, with many authorities and also on the market, it would have been a very strange signal to go and IPO the business uh, in the US, because the alternative is, is the US, right? Um, and and of course, you know, a, a lot of uh, French founders have this... Uh, attraction, um, you know, um, reach a billion uh, um, and get listed in the US. Uh, you hear that a lot uh, when you speak to founders in the tech industry, but you really have to think what's going to happen next. And if you become, you know, a very, very uh, far away provincial company for the US uh, invest investor market, you're not necessarily in a great place. And people tend to forget you. I mean, that can, at least is a very significant risk when you are completely, you know, diluted in terms of attention among thousands of other companies. Well, 3,000 in the NASDAQ, right? So you're competing a lot, right? Against those companies, right? Mm. 
Yeah, and I'm, I would like to add as well that even though I did not IPO 20 businesses in in, in Europe, I was very um, uh, positively impressed with how professional the players were, whether it be Euronext, but also the AMF, l'Autorité des Marchés Financiers, who is known for being very strict, but whom I found a lot business friendlier than I, you know, I could have expected. And, uh, and in a way, that's a way to support uh, an IPO in Europe. And, you know, uh, Gauthier and uh, Perrin, I, I did find the, uh, um, the pool of investors very professional and actually very deep because we did address investors from, uh, from the entire world. And I'd never felt that being in Europe was, was an issue and that anyone, uh, was dragging their feet because it was going to be an IPO in Paris. We had, we've seen overall more than a hundred investors, uh, together with Michel, Michel and I, sometimes myself only, sometimes, uh, uh, Michel in a rare number of times, uh, uh, together with Octave, but that, that was really, really very, uh, it was just a few times and they were from all over the world all over the world, from Asia, from Europe, from the US, from the UK. So I, I never felt you, we, we had a, you know, an investor pool that was going to be insufficient. Yeah. No, no, but, but that's, you know, I, and I, I guess, you know, US investors usually typically have global mandates and they can invest in European companies if they want to. I, I think the other way around is not that true, right? So, so to be fair, if you're a European company, you know, building a shadow base locally and still attracting US investors, if that's an objective, it's, it's, it's very possible, right? Listing in Europe. And, and as you said, I think it's, it's a long-term game and you might attract a lot of interest around your IPO, uh, but, but what really happens is it's next, right? After the IPO, when you need to tap again the equity market and how visible you really are to, to, the, to the investors, right? That's you right. know, you mentioned the advisors, uh, and I think that was a very important step uh, in, in your process. And, and you had a lot of experience with some of those advisors. So it, it sounds like for you, it was a very natural decision to, to, to choose your advisors and, and, you know, taking the people you've been working in the past with. Can you just maybe tell us about the selection process of the advisors? What is important? What is the key takeaway here? Of course. Well, first of all, selecting the advisors for an IPO, you know, the form of decision belongs to the board, right? It's important to have a formal process with uh, RFPs and to make sure that you maximize uh, your chances to, uh, uh, to have the best possible advisors. It did turn out that all the advisors that we used were advisors that um, uh, I had been working with sometimes for decades and none of them actually for less than 10 years. The, you know, you, you need to go for the people who are simply the best and, and you, you can't be penny wise and pound foolish there. You have to go for the best people because they are going to make a huge difference when more difficult uh, or more important decisions need to be made. So we did run those uh, RFPs and uh, uh, we had, uh, you know, you, you could probably group the advisors into three different uh, groups. The ones that you're going to have as advisors throughout the process. And very early on, you know, I mentioned this uh, little uh, boutique firm made from, um, uh, founded by uh, former investment bank uh, people and they advised us from the very, very beginning, actually be, even before the beginning, if I dare say, to, uh, to brief, to work on the strategy and the equity mm -hmm. story. And then we used an advisory uh, bank and then uh, also uh, a financial advisor to put together the business plan and uh, actually not to put together, but to help us put, put it together would be a, uh, a better way because this is something you do. It's company led, 
and you need strong support, both from a uh, framework standpoint, methodology standpoint, mm -hmm. and also sometimes also execution to su to support it because it's it's a it's a lot of work in addition to simply running the company. So that's the first group, the advisors that uh, that are going to go with you hand in hand throughout the process. And I must add as well uh, the lawyers, mm. which we showed which we chose early on. Uh, and they advised us also on on many uh, uh, topics, including corporate go governance structure and so on. And we really had the best people. I I would like to add something. It's not only the best professionally or intellectually, but what I found of critical importance throughout this process is having great individuals, hardworking, low ego, capable of understanding the bigger picture, never forgetting it, even though everyone is super mm. engaged day and night, you need to be able to, at the same time, see uh, the bigger picture and continuously work for the greater good and for the ultimate goal, right? And and not everybody is capable of doing so, even the greatest professionals. Some of them have more ego than others. Some of them are you know, ready to compromise more than others. So we actually built an ecosystem of advisors uh, who um, in, who's, each of them was, was capable of working with other, it's just like embarking on the on on the sailing ship, which is not a very big sailing ship. You have to you get a, you have to get along for sure. Yeah. No, exactly. If you if you just take your best friends, what you see, you know, it uh, it may not be enough. Or or the best sailors, you know, you really need to to uh, think of uh, people who are compatible with each other, and that's that's what actually happened. And again, in the background uh, and in the lead, uh, Octave, Kekia, Towerbrook uh, playing, you know, this uh, this role mm. as well. Uh, it did work very well. So the, the first group of advisors, then, of course, you have more transaction-specific advisors, you know, people for the, uh, the strategy um, uh, review, the people for financial communication. And then in the background as well, but uh, playing in a different field, you have your auditors. And you have to bear in mind that... In your relationship with auditors, there is a before you made the decision to go public and then an after you made that decision. And they become extremely demanding, even, even more than before, and because also the scope of what they have to do uh, immediately changes. And, and of course, I, I understand that. It was completely understandable. And they actually did contribute to the IPO rather than, um, uh, you know, slow us down or giving us more work. They did also give us more work, but they did contribute by putting themselves into it and an, an amazing engagement, uh, which, you know, played, played a great and, role. And so obviously a lot of attention, a lot of advisors to help you getting the company IPO ready and then to execute the IPO, right? But, but what happens after the IPO? Um, can, can you share a bit of, of your experience as a public company in terms of, you know, the, the main difference for the company itself, obviously, you mentioned public scrutiny, but, but I guess there's some other implications once you're listed um, and, and your experience on that. Yes. Well, you are a different company because you've gone through the process, not only the formal IPO process, but the year or year and a half before that, right? If I, if, you know, if I just uh, speak for VH Clouds between summer of 19, when we had the first discussions whether or not to go for an IPO and the moment we were public, it took two years. And during those two years, you become a different company. You have a different governance. You have a different organization. A lot of things are different and, and you actually become a much better company because you have a formal execution plan for everything you're going to do. And you start living that 
publicly. So on the one hand, uh, as a CFO, you have different things to do and, and more to do in a way from a reporting standpoint. Also from a governance standpoint, you need also to make sure um, that your uh, corporate governance is uh, exactly what it should be at all times. You know, I, I you know, I would like to quote making sure that uh, uh, you have everything in place, whether it be internal audit function, delegation of authorities. Make sure that uh, the, the remuneration of your CEO is uh, what it should be, but also connecting. Uh, and very important, you need to have an investor relations function, which which we put in place um, uh, six months before the IPO. And you have constant interaction. It's not a quarterly uh, uh, life. It's not that you have to report quarterly to the market. You are in constant daily contact with investors. There's always something to do. And not only preparing the next quarter, but also you get to uh, talk to investors who actually want to ask you questions about your corporate governance, about your... Uh, your social responsibility, about um, decarbonation, about many other topics that they actually study. There are plenty of themes. There are also conferences that uh, you get invited to uh, put together by various banks where you have an opportunity to meet some of your existing base, but also future investors. So it's a constant marketing job, which is which doesn't really exist when you are uh, held privately and you meet new people all the time. And it's great because they ask you, of course, 80% of the questions are the same, but it doesn't make them less yeah. relevant. But you constantly get new questions, different questions. And if you take them seriously and professionally, as you should, it continues to make you a better company. So that, that was a very different uh, way. And, and also the board, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a larger board. It's, you have more independent uh, board members. Uh, it's more formal, but, you know, it, it comes with a, with, a, with a package. When you communicated to the market, obviously you had quarterly numbers, you, you have to update the market, but as you say, it's, it's, it's a day-to-day -day, um, communication, right? But, but did you feel at some point that the market was not really understanding what, what you're trying to say to the market uh, you know, at the time of results, that the market were a bit unfair with you? Obviously, 21 and this year, again, was quite volatile and, and tech companies have been quite a, a lot under pressure, right? When it comes to VH, yes. it seems that you have delivered on, on your plan, but nonetheless, um, investors maybe have not given you fair, fair credit. Do, do you think there's some lessons learned on your communication or what, what could have been done better? All of that, yes, there are lessons learned, but... Of course, you know, on the face of it, you can see sometimes uh, the market evolution or the evolution of your, of your share price as unfair. The first thing you need to avoid is to take it personally because that's not going to help and it's hardly ever personal. Uh, the evolution of the market can, uh, of your share price can depend on, on factors which are completely foreign to your company. It can be, for instance, that there is a, a, a global derating of the tech industry. You know, it's a wave that you need to, uh, to ride and you need to be prepared for that. We, we were prepared for that because we knew when we appeared the company, it was at the very end of a cycle. And, and you know, uh, in, in the last weeks, we felt it very clearly that we were coming to the end of a cycle. But you also need to be ready about the fact that you are one among many and that your share price doesn't solely depend on, uh, the, on the performance of your company, which is why you can't drive the company your, with your eyes day-to-day uh, -day on the share price. You need to have your eyes on the horizon, on the long-term interest of the company, and again, both Octave and Michel understood that very, very clearly, which, you know, brought us 
protection, I would say, against this famous phrase, against the dictator of the dictatorship of the quarter, mm. so to speak. I feel that companies are under that dictatorship only when they look, uh, you know, very short term at their, at their interest. And you need to be capable uh, to explain your strategy and where you're going for the long term. And of course, you know, sometimes market listen, markets listen, and sometimes they listen less. You need to be very consistent. Delivering helps. There are also uh, lessons learned. You know, I, I remember when we delivered our third quarter results, which were completely on track and we even increased our guidance mm. for the rest of the year. <laughs> we went minus 5%. On and the day of the announcement of you, on mm, the day of the announcement, that sounds a bit harsh. <laughs> it it was harsh, but for us, you know, th th that minus five percent were were recovered later, and we understood why it happened. It, and 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 the two reasons why it happened were that first of all, uh, we made a mistake with the timing of the announcement. It was June thirty, and it's the last day of a quarter, and you have a lot of technical events on the markets. Mm which did result in, in, in some of that. And, and, you know, that's, that's a mistake, a technical mistake. You mean rebalancing of funds or indices, right? Okay. Absolutely. So that's one. But the other thing is because we had, uh, we were closing the year in August, we were, we were, we came first in, you know, in June ahead of, of mid-year announcements, which uh, came at, towards the end of July. And we were the first to tell the markets there might be in some corners of our business, some slowdown. And, and even though it was very minor and it was very uh, small, we were probably not sufficiently prepared to use the exact words to describe very precisely what was going on, which is actually not much. And since we, we, had, we were the only ones still above IFPO price, and we were the only ones which had not derated, and the, the, the rest of the tech industry had derated, we, you know, we, <laughs> we had quite some guns. Uh, pointed uh, at us, and everybody, well, qu quite some uh, analysts were were you know expecting us to say something, and they they really pushed very hard on, on that. Uh, and what came out uh, afterwards was over exaggerated versus what we actually wanted to say. So it, it was kind of a trap in a way. We could have seen it. Well, we saw it coming, but we could have been better prepared. I would I would say to uh, to counter that trap, but. You know, if you look in hindsight today, uh, uh, you, you look at the, the evolution of the share price. OVH Cloud is uh, give or take minus 20% versus its IPO price. It over, if you exclude uh, the, the GAFAM, which uh, also sells devices mm -hmm. to, uh, to billions of people, we are ahead. We are, you know, we are aligned with Microsoft and we're definitely ahead of the other GAFAM. We are definitely way ahead of the other IPOs in 21. And OVH Cloud is also ahead of, uh, of uh, uh, industry comparables. The performance remains a lot better. But yes, it's true. You can feel it as unfair. One thing I'd like to add, you need to manage your employees very, very carefully uh, uh, regarding the share price because it's impossible to expect of your employees that they have, you know, naturally the kind of understanding or sophistication. So they feel it very dearly and they, they feel it personally. As you know, it was a great success in October 21, 97%, if I remember well, of employees actually subscribed to the IPO um, in an employee-specific event right after the IPO. So it means that you're talking to, you know, your shareholder base when you're talking to your employees as well. And I can assure you, they do ask questions. <laughs> 
and they ask the right questions. Since they are not, uh, you know, uh, and you should not expect them to be specialists, the first question they ask is, you know, which is natural, is it, what does it mean for the company? What does it mean for it? Does it mean, uh, does it mean that we're going to have less ability to invest? Does it mean that the company is not going well? Uh, so all the basic questions and you need to communicate internally. It's very important. And you do so through the CEO, you do so through the CFO. I was involved. I recorded several short videos to explain and, and, you know, it, I was asked by, uh, by Michelle and by the uh, communication team to, to do so and by the HR teams, you know, just a minute and a half to explain that it's not com related to the company, that the company is doing great, uh, that there are, you know, events uh, in the world that actually result in this evolution, that we are doing better than our peers and that the company is doing it is, is very well funded and that everybody is safe and that we should just carry on and execute our strategy. No, it's interesting. And I guess back to your comment that being public put much more light and scrutiny on you at the end of the day, even for the employees, because it forced you to communicate even more, right? And uh, I guess it's, it's good, but but the risk as well is to be to be caught by by the market, you know, every day, basically, and, and try to justify yourself, your strategy. Um, do you think there's a risk of the market leading management to be very short term uh, and take the wrong decisions or try to anticipate too much how the market will react to any news and there is a risk of that? There is always this risk, I think, uh, around. Um, I, I don't think my particular example with OVH Cloud is uh, completely relevant or is the most exposed mm. to this kind of risk simply because with Octave and his family retaining 70% you know, of, of the company, we were not really exposed to this. And, and I'm, I can understand that it may feel very different when uh, you have a controlling shareholder kernel, which is very small, uh, and when you're actually 100% exposed to interests which are not always aligned with the long-term interest of the company. That may happen. Again, your best protection is performance. Your best pr protection is having your strategy and executing it relentlessly and being sure that you that everybody understands yeah. it. I quickly, I'd like to touch upon some ESG consideration because you mentioned you had you know a few investors and after the IPO asking you very good question on your sustainability impact and and ESG um, strategy. And I think OVH at the time of your listing, you were already a bit different from that perspective. Obviously, you mentioned the point of data sovereignty uh, and hence also why the location in Europe. But but I think you also have, um, you know, a differentiating technology to, um, you know, minimize your environmental impact. And you actually came at the time of the IPO with, you know, quite concrete targets in terms of, of, of emissions, water usage. Was it a well-defined strategy ahead of the IPO again in your preparation or that came during the process as you heard more and more investment? Or is expecting you to be better from that perspective, or can you share a bit your you, you thought process around that? Um, those ESG considerations. Of course, of course. Re regarding the particularly the carbon footprint and also the, uh, the the social awareness of the company, um, I must say, OVH Cloud was was very good at those issues, but not good at communicating them because we had never really had to communicate them. And we were very good simply because there were those themes were there when the company was founded, which, which obviously helps because you don't have to, you know, put lipstick on a pig. Uh, so it's, it's very important that the company OVH Cloud uh, with its water cooling system actually 
needed a lot less energy, uh, does actually need a lot less energy than uh, the standard air conditioning systems and uh, also consumes seven or eight times uh, less water than the standard air conditioning system. The company was founded in Roubaix in one of the cities which is in a city which is one of the poorest in France and became a very, very prominent employer of the company, hired lots of um, uh, people with no qualification and actually trained them. So I would say the social angle uh, is also extremely present at OVH Cloud. But all of that is something we never had to actually communicate. And what we did to prepare the IPO is we asked for um, an ESG rating. So we put that together and we were advised by, uh, by our advisory bank. We chose actually an ESG rating company and we performed uh, the entire exercise, which actually forced us to gather and make sure that we had all the right KPIs in place um, and to report on them on a, on a regular basis. And it, it ended up actually creating a job in the company, which is, uh, uh, by, the, by the way, taken care of by the same person as, as the one who takes care of strategy. It became strategy and ESG. Um, it was a small team focusing on, uh, um, on, on those matters. It made a difference uh, at the IPO. You, you felt that you reached out to more investors on that basis? Yes, because we were prepared to answer those questions and we had uh, KPIs in place. And, and obviously it is something which is never finished uh, and it's something which you continuously need to improve. But we did make the commitments that were made eyes wide open. It was not uh, greenwashing at all. Uh, we knew what we were talking about uh, because it's just part of the company's DNA. Now, I must add uh, to this that I was personally impressed by how much of a common and constant theme it was with all possible investors, whether small or large, American, Asian, European, wherever they came, there was always an ESG conversation and it was not a tick the box conversation. It was really something deep, something real. It gave me a little bit of faith as well in the, in, in, in the role of investors, uh, you know, uh, for the greater good of the planet. Uh, it, it was, uh, for me, definitely a discovery that, you know, uh, the great capital can also play, uh, or actually, that it was not a discovery, but a confirmation that, it, that the great capital can also play a very important role in, uh, in, in making, uh, uh, you know, our presence on this planet better. Mm. You, you didn't issue a sustainability report before the IPO, right? We, we're starting to see more and more private companies doing such, right? But that wasn't at the time a discussion, right? No, we did not issue it because uh, before the IPO, we didn't reach the necessary corporate governance criteria because we put in place the board, uh, the, the uh, AFET MEDEF compliant board on the day of the IPO. So because of that, our rating wasn't for pure technical reasons, pre-IPO, not what it uh, uh, became afterwards, but um, uh, definitely there should be, in my view, very soon uh, a publication of, um, of CSR report. Okay, I think we, we're coming to an end, um, Ian. So I have a few final questions for, for you. Obviously, you've been one of the, the successful IPO back in 21. Uh, you've done a great job. Um, you know, you, you've done things with a lot of experience and good advisors around you. But uh, is there any advice we would have liked to receive um, before the IPO uh, that could probably have made a difference uh, that you wish you knew at the time? 
that I wish I knew. I wouldn't say so, but I, I think you can never start changing your organization and improving it too soon. What actually does make a difference, and not only, by the way, to IPO your business, is how good the people you have around you and in your teams are. And hiring the right people in the market, which is extremely competitive and which remains competitive, is critical. It does 80% of the job. And you can never spend too much time doing that, right? So it's, um, it's at least a piece of advice which I would dare share with, with anyone in general, but definitely it's even more important when uh, you, uh, you put together, when you prepare uh, the company for an IPO. Have the right people at as early as possible and focus on that. It's going to help you anyway. Okay, that's a good advice. Thank you. Another one as well. I mean, we, we haven't mentioned that, but you up for the next challenge. You, you recently joined um, Exotech, another, another very promising tech uh, French company as well. Potentially listing one day, who knows? But uh, if you were to IP Exotech, you know, anything again you will do differently um, or you just apply the same recipe at, at, um, at OVH? You know, each, each IPO is, um, is different. Each company is different. Um, Exotech is a much, much younger company. So some of them is, is in common. I would, I would certainly, uh, seek to use, you know, for any other company, uh, the same group of advisors as, uh, as, as I used, because I, I think they can do different types of IPOs, but I would definitely make sure. I, I think that the one thing that I would seek and which does make a difference is make sure that everyone is aligned on the purpose of the IPO. And I don't think that all companies have the luxury of having a complete uh, alignment as the one that we had or that the one that we actually built um, um, with OVH Cloud. Alignment of all stakeholders, private um, capital, founders, management, in the end, the banks as well, everybody was aligned. And it's, it's part of the job of the CFO mm. to make sure that this alignment is continuously kept, no loose ends. And if there is an, an, an issue around alignment, whether it be timing, share price, execution, or otherwise, it needs to be clarified. And if as a CFO, you, you can't do it yourself, then you need to, you need to know when to raise the attention of your CEO and of your founder and so on to make sure that the solution is quickly found. Yeah, so you're in the middle of the pack. Mm. You have to coordinate and not only to coordinate execution, you have to go coordinate alignment. That, you know, it's an interesting part of, uh, of, of the job, obviously. But that's something I would also share as a, as a piece of, of, of mm. advice. I guess it's a lot to coordinate. And on top of that, you have the market timing, which you don't really control, but, but you have to be ready when the market yeah. opens, right? To, to get everyone signing off, yeah. right? Mm. Any fun facts you can share with us during your, your IPO process, roadshows, or interaction with public investors uh, that, that you remember and take over with you at OVH? Yeah, look... Um, Two days before the IPO, really two days before the IPO, we had an outage. It was in the morning, uh, Paris time, both uh, uh, Michelle and I were, were together and <laughs> we looked at each other's like, how can this on earth, how can the this The gods happen? are not with you, right? Yeah. It was just an attempt by, uh, by the technical teams to reinforce, you know, because when, when you get an IPO and you're a tech company, you get more attacks from the outside. Because you get, you know, you get more awareness, more attention, and, and you know, people who do this kind of things actually think they're going to have, you know, a greater impact, which is true, actually. So, 
we we quickly found what was going on and uh, and uh, cured it very quickly. We were actually helped by the fact that Facebook themselves had the same uh, issue a week before, and it took them five times more time than we actually uh, took to find and cure the issue. It's just manual, uh, actually human error. But we obviously had to explain that to a number of investors. We, you know, proactively contacted some of them. Some others did found uh, you did, did find uh, uh, our phone numbers very quickly. So we organized some calls. And what I remember is meetings with two long-term investors or, or, or so they had introduced themselves. And, and they had completely opposite behaviors. <laughs> you know, one of them said, you know, it's so embarrassing because my, you know what, my, uh, my IT uh, guy told me not to go with uh, VH Cloud because he had a couple of uh, uh, issues in the past. And now I'm so embarrassed. What can I tell him? And, uh, you know, we, in the end, I don't think we will, uh, we're going to, uh, to join. And, you know, those, those people were introducing themselves as long-term investors. And, um, and the other one said, they called proactively and they said, you know, we know tech. We know those things happen. We've seen you sort it out very quickly, communicate in the right way. Don't worry. We are with you. We understand your business. We're here for the long term. And the long term doesn't have to stop, uh, you know, at, at the first incident. Uh, and by the way, make sure it doesn't happen again. But uh, we are with you. And of course, the second type was was very smart because this was the kind of support we, we expected. They, they, you know, bought themselves with an open, uh, 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 you know, communication link with us for literally forever. But they had the right, uh, the right attitude. Yeah. No, I think it is quite telling, and you always have people telling you they're long term, but it sounds to be a relative definition, right? And and uh, even we try to to look good and please you, but but eventually, uh, I think over time you, you will see who are the shelters, and and they're not be necessarily the same at at, at IPO, right? Um, so it's it's uh, interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Jan, thank you very much for taking the time. It was a pleasure. We did cover a lot of topics, so highly appreciate. Uh, thank you uh, again for sharing uh, all of that with us today. Uh, it, it was a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we will host company managements, advisors, and other participants on the IPO process to learn from their experience, like from Jan today. If you like the show, please follow us and share the show with people around you.